Good morning again. How does life feel to you right now? You don't actually have to shout out answers. I just want you to think about that. Do you ever feel like you're juggling too many balls? Yeah, you got, got some nods and some hands up. We're in the middle of summer, and for some people, that means it's actually a time of rest. And for other people, it means you normally have four balls, and all of a sudden, you have eight, right? Um, do you ever feel like uh, you just can't stay balanced? Like that's just out of reach? Yeah, more nods. Um, do you ever feel like you're putting on a show? Is that something you feel like? More nods? Yeah. Yeah, we get these feelings, right? Do you ever notice that these are all circus metaphors? I know I totally just shifted gears on you there. <laughs> Juggling balls, trying to stay balanced, right? Putting on a show. They're all circus metaphors. And there's lots more that we use. Talk about spinning plates, talk about trying to be a rising star, talk about feeling like a clown. Um, they're all over the place. We use circus metaphors all the time. Quite a few years ago, and when I was a student at Regent College, I heard a lecture, and uh, the speaker was, it was called The Garden or the Circus, Metaphors to Live and Die By. And she was contrasting the biblical way of talking about life, which is most commonly filled with garden metaphors, with the kind of modern language we use, which are most commonly, not only, but most commonly filled with circus metaphors. And um, the point she made was that when it comes to framing our lives, circus metaphors are profoundly unhelpful. They, they don't actually lead to good things. They're drawn from an arena in which people are putting on a show, right? like that's actually what they're doing, in which they're performing for a crowd. They're, they're, you look at someone who's performing in a circus, and the goal is not to be their real full selves and show you who they are, but to display skills. Right? And to entertain, and to amuse, um, and, to, and to wow, to amaze, right? This is the point of a circus. And it's good insofar as that's all it is. But when that becomes life, you get into this deadly cycle um, of metaphors. And I know it sounds like, wait, we just talk this way. We do just talk this way, but we talk this way for a reason. And how we frame a thing affects how we feel about it, and how we treat it, and how we act, and the options that we're able to perceive. And so often in terms of our lives, the question we're asking is, am I succeeding? Like, is the show going well? Am I becoming a star, right? We say things like, maybe sometimes I feel like I'm just a spectator and life is passing me by, right? Like, there's a show and you should be part of that, and that would be life, but you're not. You're just a spectator and you're not part of life. And what does that metaphor allow? Well, get to work and get to being part of the show, and, and performing and showing people what you've got. And none of that is very life-giving. It's mostly soul-crushing. It mostly puts you in a position where you feel like it's never enough and where each new day you've kind of got to start again and you've got to do it again, and right, just like a show. Yesterday's show isn't good enough for today. You can put on the most amazing show you want yesterday. All that's going to do is draw a crowd to see you do it better the next time. Right? There's no way out. Um, but... What if there's another way to look at life? What if the blessed life, real life, life to the full, isn't about public showmanship? It's not about acclaim and stardom and success and money and power. What if it's about something else entirely? And what if the metaphor itself actually affects the way that we look at this? What if we aren't performing in a circus? 
What if we're living in a garden? And I want to look at that today from the lens of Psalm 1. And look at the way that Psalm 1 talks about the blessed life. And so I'm going to ask you, with that thought in mind about gardens and circuses, to open your Bibles or pull out your phones or look at the screen behind me to Psalm chapter 1. There's Psalm 1. And please stand for the reading of the Word of God. And I ask every morning, every Sunday morning that we stand for the Word of the Lord, to honor the Word of the Lord, to take part together, to remember this is the best thing you're going to hear from me this morning, is, is the Word of the Lord. So Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, blessed is the one, who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. It's okay. Oh, we're back to verse 1. There we go. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The word of the Lord, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for creating us in your image to enjoy life, to be blessed. And I pray that this morning as we look at Psalm 1, that you would teach us more of what that means and of how you call us into that life, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So there are two kinds of people in this room, people who are comfortable with dividing the world into two kinds of people and people who aren't. For those of you who aren't, I'm sorry, Psalm 1 divides the world into two kinds of people, <laughs> the righteous and the wicked. Um, you've got the righteous who are blessed and you've got the wicked who are not and who will not stand in the day of judgment. And we're going to look today at the blessed life. What is a blessed life? And, um, and Psalm 1 is intended to offer us a choice. It's intended to lay before us these two paths and not just say, look, you can live the life of righteousness, which is blessed, or you can live the life of wickedness, which is not. The psalm wants us to pick rightly. Like the psalmist is writing this and, and wants blessing for us and wants righteousness for us. And all the metaphors and the way that this psalm is set up, they're meant to lead you down that path. Um, but you only get there if you make that choice. And so we're going to look today, we're going to look at what is the blessed, blessed life. From the perspective of Psalm 1, what is a blessed life? And then what's the path to get there? What, what, what does that actually look like? And then what's the choice that starts you on that path? So that's where we're going to go today, three places, or three progressive questions. And we're going to start in verses 3 and 4. We start in the middle, because this is where the blessed life is described. Verse 3, that person, the person who is righteous, that person, the person who is blessed, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose life does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. So here we have our garden metaphors describing life as a tree. 
Specifically, the righteous blessed person is like a tree planted beside streams of water. Point one, or part one of the blessed life, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. So if we were going to summarize this, we would say that the blessed life is sustainable, fruitful, and resilient. Sustainable, fruitful, and resilient. And I want to look at each one of these from verse 3 and 4. So first of all, it's a tree planted beside streams of water. Now, in the Middle East, where this is composed and written and where the people lived that put together the book of Psalms, it's an arid land. And if you see a tree and it's got green leaves and it's growing, you know it has a good source of water. This is just common sense, right? It's true here too, it's just not as rare. (laughs) They're everywhere. And there's sources of water that are in abundance. That's not true in the land of Israel. The only way for a tree to grow and flourish in this place is to be planted beside some kind of um, constant, consistent, reliable source of water. There's lots of other sources of water that would not allow a tree to grow. There's canyons and valleys in the Middle East that every time there's a rainy season, they flash flood. You can't grow a tree there. There's places that gather water after the rain, but it just, it sits until it grows fetid and then it, it evaporates. And again, you can't plant a tree there. There's the ocean, right? Israel borders the sea, um, but it's one of the saltiest seas in the world, and, and any sea is not going to support the life of a tree. You have to have some other source of water, some underground stream, some place that, or some, some aquifer where the water is just there and reliable for the tree to grow. And that's what makes this tree sustainable. It's connected to its source of life. This is, we know this about biology. I'm not teaching you anything about trees, I'm pretty sure right now. The point, though, is that the same thing is true of us. There are lots of places you can find life, in quotation marks, but many of them are just like those canyons and valleys. The water flash floods through there every once in a while, but it's more destructive than it is helpful. There are places where water sits, but it's not actually life-giving. It's, it's growing dirty and dark and disappearing, and it's not going to hold up. There are places where it's water, but it's not water that you can grow in, right? This is very much true for us as well. There are places that we look for life in distraction and entertainment, in wealth and in power, in success, in the approval of others. And all of these places feel like they're life-giving, but they turn out to be one of these other kinds of geographical places for water. They're, They're flash floods, which is usually what people find around success and wealth and power. They feel like, for a time, it's really life-giving right up until these things destroy you. There's places where it's nice and you get, this, you get water and it's kind of like a puddle and that's kind of entertainment and distraction. It's shallow and it doesn't actually sustain. And I, I hope I'm not hurting anyone's feelings when I say that most of our forms of entertainment and distraction are growing dirtier. Like they're not, they're not actually good, right? There's places where we, we think we're getting life, like the approval of others, but it's salt water. There's no real life there. It's it's just a deathly cycle. It's that show, what was good enough for yesterday isn't good enough for today. You've got to do better because what you did yesterday, now people expect that of you, right? Now that's just the normal and today you have to do more or they're going to be disappointed, right? And all of these places are, so so what's what's the right source of life? 
within the context of the Psalms and within the context of the Scripture as a whole, a sustainable life is one, only found in one place. You have to be planted in God. He is the reliable, consistent, clean, and healthy source of life. A prosperous life, then, a blessed life, is one in which we find our life in Jesus, by His Spirit living in us. And I read this verse earlier, we are promised springs of living water, which is a way of saying clean, flowing, fresh water, both to feed our thirst, but also flowing out of us to bless the world. So a blessed life is sustainable. A blessed life is also fruitful. This is the second thing that's said here, which yields, it's this tree which yields its fruit in season. The biblical imagery of blessing is not completely different from what our world considers blessing. Often, if you ask what it means to be blessed from a worldly perspective, it's things like security and wealth and possessions and enjoyment and freedom and stuff like that. Those aren't bad things. There's a place for that in Scripture. And when it talks about here a tree which yields its fruit in season, that is some of the imagery that it's touching into. It, it actually directly says that at the end. Whatever this person does, they prosper, right? There's success in that. But that prosperity and that success fits within the garden imagery. Who does a tree bear fruit for? A tree does not bear fruit for itself, right? That's not what that fruit is for. There's two purposes of fruit in a tree. Sustenance for the creatures who feed on it, and the spreading of the life of that tree through its seeds. In other words, both of those purposes are outwardly directed. They're for others. They're for passing on life to others around you. And that's exactly the biblical image of blessing. That in as much as we do have what the world would call prosperity, in as much as we are living what the world would call a blessed life, that's only true if we're living it towards others. That's why there's never a question of how much, right? The, the, the biblical image here of blessing is not, here's this tree planted by streams of water that is yielding a hundred times more fruit than a normal tree would yield. That's just piles of fruit all around it, right? Like, that's not the point. This tree may be small, and its fruit may not be, there may not be a ton of it. Lots of the trees that grow in Israel, they're not big, right? And you're not talking about like, thousands of apples. You're talking about handfuls of figs. Um, the issue isn't how much do you have to count for blessing. The issue is what do you do with it? That's what makes for blessing. What do you do with what you have? The blessed life is one that is shared freely, that is passed on. The last part of the image, so you've got sustainable, you've got fruitful. The last part of the image is that the blessed life is resilient. This is the third part, whose leaf does not wither. And the picture here is not of a tree that doesn't go through seasons, right? It's not of a tree that doesn't lose its leaves when it's supposed to. The picture is of a tree that does not wither in the face of drought. That when all the other water is dried up, and therefore the trees are losing their life as a result, a tree that is connected to the deep, sustainable, reliable, consistent source of water, its leaves will stay green. It is resilient in the face of the trials and hardships going on around it. And again, this is the picture of the blessed life, a life that stands firm in the face of hardships. And there are hardships. 
This is a reality. Again, this is one of those things where we, we often, like, we get it half right. So we like the image of prosperity, but then we want it to be all for us. And the Bible says, no, what has been given to you is only a blessing if you pass it on, right? We like the image of not having trouble in the world, but the scriptures don't say you won't have trouble. They say you'll get through it. Your leaf won't wither in the midst of it because you are hooked into the Lord. You are hooked into God. And he is always abundantly able to meet you in those places. So sustainable, fruitful, and resilient. And each of these points are amplified by the contrast. I won't spend as long here, but in verse 4, not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Chaff is the ultimate garden image for what is rootless, useless, and weightless, which is the opposite of all of those things. It's rootless rather than sustainable. It's not connected to anything. It may have served a purpose once. It did, in fact, in the life of the plant, serve a purpose once. But as it has grown that part of the plant is released, it's no longer connected, it has no life, it's rootless, it's useless. At the point of harvest, the chaff needs to go away. It's no longer good for anything. Um, And it's weightless, which is why the wind blows it away. And the images here of how this works is the image of, um, of threshing where you would take the wheat or whatever, the corn, et cetera, you'd put it in the barn and you let it dry out. And then you open the doors on both ends of the barn so that the wind can blow through and you throw this up into the air. And the fruit, which has weight, falls back down to the ground and the chaff, which doesn't, is blown away and it's gone. Um, And in this set of imagery, this is the contrast. And the implicit question is, Which life do you want to live? Do you want to be a tree planted beside still waters, bearing fruit whose leaves does not wither? Or do you want to be chaff? Because you're either connected to the source of life, the only true source of life, and therefore you're a growing tree, or you're not, and you're drying up, and you're withering, and you're fading. And if we look back at those circus metaphors with all the, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here, I want you to recognize how much we need this life. But a lot of the stuff we talk about around the circus metaphors, if we actually turned them into garden metaphors, we would be talking about feeling like chaff. We would be talking about feeling like we're so worried about the winds of life blowing because we know if they blow too hard, we can't hang on. We're just going to be swept away, right? And it becomes anxious. Talking about Um, how we're feeling like we're drying up. Uh, And if that's where you're at, the call is not to feel bad about it. The call is to connect to God because he's the one who can make a difference. He's the one who can change that. And that starts to get us into our second point. What is the path to righteousness? And through that, blessing. Assuming, and I hope I'm safe in assuming, that with this contrast laid before you, you would rather be the tree. (laughs) I don't think any of us would stand here and say, no, the chaff sounds good. That sounds like the life I want. (laughs) So assuming you want to be the tree, how does that work? How do you get there? And to answer that, we step back into verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, Or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. 
One of the things about the Psalms is their poetry. And so they're often very economical about the way they express things. And so verse 1 talks to us about the path that the righteous person avoids. But at the same time, it's implicitly teaching us about the path the righteous person takes. And even beyond those things, it's teaching us about how we change. Because that's the real question when it comes to choosing these paths. If we already feel like chaff, we already feel like we're drying up and we're anxious about the wind, then we need to change. We need to undergo transformation. How does that happen? Right? We're not talking about something that just poof and it's done. Um, and incidentally, that's where the garden metaphor really helps. Right? In a circus metaphor, it is poof and it's done. Like, you've got to make it work now or else. But if you actually plant a tree, you don't come back tomorrow expecting to find, a, you know, you plant a seed, an acorn, and tomorrow you're going to find a fully grown, leafy, fruitful tree. Nobody expects, you'd be crazy, right? And if you went out there tomorrow and you're like, why aren't you a tree? And you dug it up and threw it in the garbage, um, that would be a big problem. With a tree, we understand that this is slow, that this is a journey, that you're talking about years of tending and pruning and, and watching and protecting and all of these other kinds of things. So if you're here this morning and you feel like you've been on that journey towards chaff and you want to change that, you know, that's, it's going to be slow and it's going to be gradual and that's okay. The garden imagery has all of that built into it, including seasons, right? Like a tree doesn't bear fruit every season, it bears fruit in season. It's okay to have times where the ground is fallow, times where the leaves aren't green, right? Because that's normal in the life cycle of a tree. It frees us up to walk through those different seasons. So what does this journey look like and not look like? You get this series of progressive steps. You've got the walk and the stand and the sit. I don't know if you noticed that. Blessed is the one who does not walk or stand in the way or sit in the company of these different groups of people. And this is that recognition that we settle into ways of life, right? And the change occurs in that way too, for good or for ill, right? You don't just suddenly find yourself randomly and accidentally seated, belonging, feeling at home in the company of scoffers. That takes time. It takes acclimatization. It takes changes internally and externally in your life. Same thing in the path of righteousness. You don't just suddenly find yourself accidentally and randomly sitting in the assembly of the righteous. It's a journey. So one progression is that walk, stand, sit, which points to the second progression where, and some of the translations don't always capture this, who walk in step. This is a metaphor for, for accepting counsel. So some older translations will say, who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So this is, we've got the counsel, the thoughts, or stand in the way, which is always a little bit fun because it's like, well, the way implies movement and standing doesn't, but the way is that idea of action, right? So we've got the counsel, we've got our thoughts, and then we've got our actions, we've got the ways in which we do things, and that's why we move from the wicked to the sinner, which is the third progression, because wickedness from a biblical perspective is being turned away from God. We always think about it as doing really bad sins, um, which, of course, is going to be the fruit 
of living a life turned away from God. But the heart of wickedness is a life turned away. And the counsel of the wicked is the counsel, the wisdom of the world that isn't connected to God. And then we move into the way of sinners. Sinnering, sinning is an action word. It's a verb. It's something you do. You've taken the advice of wickedness, the thoughts that are turned away from God, and now you are acting out the sin. And then the final place you find yourself is seated in the company. And this is, this is a question of, it's not about thoughts, or actions anymore. It's about belonging. It's about where do you fit? What environment is home for you, right? And this, again, you think about this in terms of a garden image, like where does a tree grow? What is the appropriate environment for it? Well, wickedness walks that same path. You get to a point where you belong in a certain place, where it feels right, even if it isn't. And then this is where we get the company of mockers or scoffers, which if you've been thinking about like wickedness is really awful sin and sinners is the people who do things wrong, why does the progression end with scoffing? Like why not murderers um, or like betrayers or like there seems to be a lot worse sins if we're going to rate them than scoffing and mocking. But that's not the journey that the the psalm is walking you on. It's not walking you deeper and deeper into sin. It's walking you deeper and deeper into a life turned away from God. And what is the actual position of a scoffer and a mocker? It is the place of pride. Scoffing and mocking always come out of a place of feeling above, right? And I can, I can look down on you and I can mock you and I can scoff at you. And from a biblical perspective, that is the most dangerous place to be. Because repentance requires humility. And you can only come back to God through repentance and humility. And so the opposite end of the spectrum is scoffing and mocking and pride. Right? And so that's the journey that is being walked here. It is a journey away from God. And so blessed is the one who does not take that journey. Blessed is the one instead and you can reverse all of these things and this, implicit, this is implicit who walks in the counsel in step with the godly, those who are turned towards God, the counsel and the thinking that turns you back to him and to his ways, who stands in the way of the righteous, right? Who, who lives out right relationships, who does the right things, who turns in love towards their neighbor and towards their God and towards his creation, and who sit in the company of the humble, Right? who find that that's where they belong. Now, that reverses the journey, but it isn't the contrast that the psalmist makes. The contrast the psalmist makes is, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Because once you've taken account of your thinking and your actions and the company around you, what you haven't spoken of yet is the heart. And that's the ultimate place where all of this settles in. What is your delight in? Right? And so when, when offering this contrast at the same time, you're actually going one step deeper into the progression. Blessed is the one who doesn't do this, doesn't do this, doesn't do this, but whose heart, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Which is a powerful way of talking about where we're meant to be, and a powerful way of examining and questioning ourselves. Um, but before I say how that works, let me explain 
what we're talking about when we talk about someone whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. Um, I was talking to a couple of friends this week, and one of them said, like, how can you meditate on the law day and night? Like, how can you go to this and there's like, you know, however many hundred commands in the books of the law in the Bible, and you're supposed to take great joy in those? That doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. So first clarification, delight in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord in this context is referring to the entire word of God, not just what we would call the laws, the places where God says, do this and don't do this and gives you strict commands. It's talking about delighting in the word that he has given us. And the picture here, as much as you might start to think, okay, I'm not a monk. <laughs> I don't meditate every, every day and every night. The, and you're right if what you mean is sitting alone in a room with the Bible in front of you or anything else and you're, you're thinking about it. The picture here, though, is actually something that we are all familiar with. We are all familiar with what it means to delight in something. Um, think of your favorite hobby. Now, some of us maybe aren't in this place right now in our lives, but there are people who can tell you, you know, their favorite hobby is hockey. And they play hockey, and they watch hockey, and they love their favorite teams, and they can tell you the game stats for the last 20 years, and they can tell you about the players, and they can tell you about the best this and that and the other thing. How did they get there? It's because they delighted in that thing, right? Some of us, it's music. We love music. And you can tell me all about your favorite bands, and you can tell me all about your favorite songs, and you can take those songs apart, and you can point to each of the different things and all this kind of stuff. How did you get there? It's because you delighted in it. Nobody had to tell you to sit down at the end of the day and go on your computer and start listening to that music and reading the bios and et cetera, et cetera, right? Nobody had to tell you... Um, to go look up those players and like, you know, you, if you really want to love hockey, here are the charts you have to memorize, right? Nobody does that. And you don't do that with your kids either. If, if your parents here and you have kids and you're trying to get them to enjoy those sports too, you don't start that way. You just start by talking about it and watching it with them. You start with the head, and then you get into the actions, and then you find out you belong, right? You enjoy being at that hockey game or at that concert or whatever the case may be. You find this is your people, and they're your company, and, and it builds up to the point where without ever planning it and without ever thinking about it, you find your delight in this thing. You weren't born there. You weren't born loving hockey or music or football or art or whatever it is that you find your delight in. You grew it. You developed it over time, usually without reflection and without intention, but that's still the path you walked, and that's the path that we are called to walk with God, where we think and we act and we belong and we find our delight in this thing. And in that delight, meditating on it day and night is easy. It's not work anymore, it's fun. But most of us, for a variety of reasons, don't ever get there with our faith. Um, and I think it's because we skip a lot of steps. I think it's because most of us have step one, we think about it, and we have the last step. We try to really memorize and focus and get it in our heads, but we skip all the middle stuff, right? The parts where you go from thinking to acting to belonging to delighting and allowing that delight to guide your meditations and your thinking and your acting, and, and it gets into this virtuous cycle of building things up. And we just keep it in our heads, and we never go farther than that. 
I wish, well, I don't wish, it's not the right psalm or the right time this morning to really sink into, okay, how do you actually, how do, you actually do that? Well, it starts with a choice, right? And that's where the psalmist is trying to draw us. This is Psalm 1. It's the opening psalm of the book of Psalms, and it's meant to serve as kind of a gatekeeper, as a, as a, as a door person, as a, as, a, as a greeter, as you enter into this book. And it's asking you this question because if your answer is, I'd like to be that tree, then the book of Psalms is here to help you. The book of Psalms is a place where you can go and you can find some places to have your thoughts guided and have your actions guided and find company both in the book itself, because if you read through the book of Psalms, you will find Psalms that very much echo your heart. The book of Psalms is a book of prayers filled with every emotion, filled with every struggle and every rejoicing. And wherever you're at, whether you're feeling in in deep despair or whether you're feeling the heights of joy or anything in between, you're going to find good company here, right? And it's, it's the kind of literature, and this is even for those of you who are here this morning, you're like, I am not a poetry person. Okay, I get it. <laughs> but poetry is the kind of literature, whether or not you're a poetry person, um, that can bring delight, that plays with pictures and words and images and metaphors to catch you off guard and make you smile and make you laugh, right? Um, there's lots of jokes in the Psalms. There's lots of fun parts. There's lots of places where you'll be like, that's where I am and be surprised and happily surprised and pleasant. And so part of the choice that's being given to you here is read the book of Psalms with this in mind, with this process in mind and with this desire in mind and allow it to speak to you in those places and guide you in those places. But the deeper choice, which is beyond the book of Psalms, is the choice of Jesus. I referenced when I was talking about the tree planted by streams, what does that mean? The stream of water, the source of life, the consistent, reliable place that you can go to find this is Jesus. But that's true of each of the parts that we talk about this. So Jesus says to the woman at the well, the passage I read earlier, um, you know, if you knew who, you were, who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked for a drink, and I would have given you the waters of eternal life. Right? Talk about a fruit, a tree yielding its fruit in season, and Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. Right? This promise of fruitfulness, again, is found in Jesus. And he also says to us that if we believe in him, we will not die but have eternal life. You talk about leaves not withering. It doesn't get any better than that. All of the promises of the blessed life are ultimately and most fully fulfilled and offered in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, depending on where you are in your journey this morning, if you haven't chosen Jesus and you want the life described in this psalm, that's where you have to begin. You have to begin by choosing him and living that choice out because a a choice is only real if it's lived out. And so the beginning point of that is just to tell him, just to take a moment to pray and tell God that you want to choose him. That, that you're willing to be humble before him and recognize that you have been um, on the path of wickedness. And I don't mean that in the sense of you're a totally evil sinner who's done the worst things ever, but you've been turned away from God and you want him to bring you back. And you confess that and you invite him into your life. And then continuing that choice is going to be about, okay, how do I guide my thoughts in this new way? 
what people do I need to help me in that, right? Because every step of the way of that, you know, taking counsel from a certain group of people, walking in the way of a certain group, we don't do this alone. And we are here for you if you are making that choice. If you've already made that choice, if you're here this morning and you have chosen Jesus already, then the choice is to allow his picture of a blessed life to guide you and to walk in his way and not the way of the world. And I would encourage you to make that choice by spending the summer in the Psalms with us. And I don't just mean come here on Sunday and hear me preach or a few other people because we've got missionaries and stuff coming out to do the eight psalms or seven psalms that you're going to hear about from the front in this, in this summer series. Um, I mean spend the summer in the psalms yourselves. There's 150 of them. You don't have to read them all, but you could read one a day. Or you could read the same one several times over a period of several days. With this picture in mind, find yourself in here. Pray through these. Allow them to shape you and grow with us as we journey together in the Psalms. Let me pray for you, and then we get to celebrate communion together. We get to celebrate the life that Jesus has given for us, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the picture of the garden and the freedom that that gives and the grace that's just bound up in that picture of the space for changes to be made gently and slowly, and for growth to come in its season, and for that pressure to be reduced um, that we have in our circus of a world. And I pray that we would have the wisdom to walk in your ways, that you would lead us um, with the counsel of godliness, and that you would lead us in the way of righteousness, and that we would find our home and our belonging in the company of the humble, of which you are the first, Lord God, who came and gave everything up to be human and walk with us and die for us. Now, as we turn to celebrate that, Lord, bring into our hearts gratitude and thanksgiving and deepen our understanding of your sacrifice. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.